All right, well, let's turn to the Lord then in, in prayer. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the body of Christ. Uh, we thank you that we are um, all of us who know him and uh, find our joy in him, that we come and we rejoice this morning in him and in the fellowship and uh, the blessing of brothers and sisters in Christ that we go through life together um, for the sake of your great name. Uh, we admit we can do nothing apart from you and you have made it to where your body matters and we are individually members of it. And when one suffers, all suffer. Uh, and so may we come uh, evermore rejoicing in your, your body and uh, evermore loving one another and spurring one another on uh, for your glory. And we come, Father, and we thank you for uh, the gospel that we come in light of such a, a glorious gospel that you would save people unworthy of salvation. So we, we praise you for the one foundation of Christ who is our hope and may his name continue to go out and may he be many more people's hope as well here in Alabama and beyond. And so, Father, we pray as we turn to your word, may you give us grace and even our hearts right now that you quiet them, prepare them, and help us, Lord, and even ready them to receive all your good word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let me begin this morning with something of a qualification. So it's only been two weeks since we began walking through the Gospel of John, and now we are two sermons in, and we come to our next passage this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. So it's a passage about the Word made flesh, Christ's first coming. His incarnation. So what's my qualification? Well, I know it's March. We still have many months before it is December, and I realize that it is not Christmas. As you are likely aware, this is no doubt a passage that is often preached at Christmas time, and rightly so. But as we come to this passage... This morning, we need to come and say two things. First, let's gladly say that we are not limited to celebrating the Incarnation to once a year. His coming is a reason for year-round rejoicing. So we say that, one. Two, we believe in expository preaching here at Haven. So that is preaching through books of the Bible, passages at a time, with the main idea of the text in its context becoming the main idea and thrust of the sermon. 
So we do this because we believe the Bible is God's God-breathed authoritative words. And they bear ultimate and final authority over our lives, our faith, and our practice, and everything else. So, we come then next, as we're walking through the Gospel of John, to this incredible passage. We often preach at Christmas time, but we preach now as well. So today, at the beginning of March, we come to a passage that calls us to wonder at the Incarnation, the Word made flesh. And that's what we'll do. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me then to John 1, 14-18. May God transform us and conform us to all of His good and sufficient Word this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. What a good word. What we have seen thus far, going through this first chapter here in the Gospel of John, from verses 1 through 13, it has led up to and has even built up to this moment right here in verse 14. And I hope if you've been here, you've felt that. An expectation, something amazing and incredible is getting ready to happen. So we have seen that again and again. Something momentous is happening. And now, the time has come. The Word from all of eternity, who has been gloriously transcendent, now comes breathtakingly imminent. Here He is. Him who condescends. For who? For sinners. Him who condescends for us. So we behold the final word made flesh. But what do I mean here by final? It means God's fullest, truest, most grace-filled revelation has come. As God and man, this Word made flesh is revelation walking. He is life walking among us. And this is exactly what we see and we witness as we will continue walking through the Gospel of John. Let me give you a few examples 
of how He comes as the final word and as He speaks with authority. John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Again, in John 5, He says, Jesus, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John seven thirty-seven through 38 If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here he is. Our final hope. True life. Those who thirst, come and drink, is what he tells you. He is the final word. All of Revelation has pointed and is directing us and all to Him. As Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. So, we would be right to come to our Bibles as we behold the final word, the word made flesh this morning, and read them with gospel eyes. The golden thread of Scripture is a golden thread that you see everywhere. Now, I don't mean we are to peruse our Bibles making up gospel connections where they are not. You know, unfortunately, some people, they overcorrect here. They think, well, If it's going to be Jesus, it's going to be Jesus everywhere in every little detail of every little thing that I see. And so some come to the Bible and they think, well, you know, it's the color red, the blood of Jesus. You know, Uh, when they uh, see Job and and the book of Job and his face is red with weeping, oh, that's the blood of Jesus right there. (laughs) When they hear the word Red Sea, oh my. The blood of Jesus. Incredible. Or when they see Jacob, he makes red stew. Oh, that is the blood of Jesus right there. I know it's, it's silly, but that's sometimes the way we come to our Bibles. We are not meant to come to our Bibles and, and allegorize God's Word. We aren't to make the Bible mean whatever we imagine it to mean. You know, years ago, in church history, some indeed did interpret it 
this way, and, and otherwise, I mean, some still do, otherwise why would I be giving this as an exhortation? But one early Christian wrote of the parable of the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son? You know, son gets his dad's inheritance and basically squanders it all and comes running back to the father, and the father comes and welcomes him back with open arms while the elder son sits back in scorn. What's going on here? Well, this early church author wrote this of this parable. The elder son in the story is the Jew. The younger, the Christian. The patrimony of which the younger claimed his share is that knowledge of God which a man has by his birthright. The citizen in the far country to whom he hired himself is the devil. The robe bestowed on the returning prodigal is that sonship which Adam lost at the fall. The ring is the sign and seal of baptism. The feast is the Lord's Supper. The fatted calf slain for the feast is the Jesus Christ. Now, no. That is not what, how we are to read our Bibles. That is not what that parable is doing, and that's not a meaning you can find in that parable specifically in each one of those areas. You will not find the Lord's Supper in the parable of the prodigal son. Instead, we are to seek the Bible's meaning in its context, and we see connections where there's actual textual reason to do so. There is warrant in the text itself for this. So we must be students of the Word of God, carefully seeing what's there and not making up what's there. So, let me urge you, take up your Bible, yes, read them, and read them well. Take hold of the Word of God. See the Gospel threads because they're there, and we will even see them in just a moment. How John does this. And he does it right. And we can see it right. But get in the Word, and know that here, right here, is the final Word, and the final Word has come. Now, let's slow down here slightly. So verse 14, you know, I would imagine many of you have heard that verse many times. I'm sure you have fond memories, you know, of this passage being preached in celebration of the birth of Christ. I know, I, I mean, I've been impacted by the preaching of this passage myself, but let's, let's ask something that maybe you've wondered about along the way. The question of why. That is, why the Word, the eternal Son of God, why does He take on flesh? Why is that necessary? Well, if He was not the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Son enfleshed, if He was only a man born of a woman, he would have still inherited our sinful nature. In other words, he would not have been able to save us because he could not have saved us. He would have simply been another failed redeemer along the way. Noah found favor with God, but he was not enough. Abraham was declared righteous 
by faith, but he was still insufficient. Again and again, we see this over and over. Will this be the one who rescue us from the curse? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, again and again, and the resounding verdict is not the Redeemer. This is not Him. He is still a sinner. He's still not perfect. When will He come? No. The one we need, we need this one. We need Him who took on flesh for us. Sin, it has so dirty and stained us that there is no part of us that is left undirtied and unstained by it. Our problem is we're we're dirty and we are sin-stained. You know, when I was younger, after it rained, you know, and you can imagine the ground was thoroughly soaked, and we had, uh, at the time, our house was new, and on the side of our house, there's, you know, a bunch of ground that was pretty much just dirt, and with a lot of rain, and it being kind of toiled up, uh, it could be muddy. So, my brother, one of my brothers and I, we decided that we wanted to go outside and, and go investigate the wonders of mud. And so we did. Uh, we didn't do it halfway either, you know, we kind of began slowly, you know, got our feet in there and uh, first and then, then our hands and uh, when it was all said and done, you know, we were covered in mud. You know, every parent's dream, right? Your kid comes in, you've been outside for a while, whoa, <laughs> well that was us. Now one thing about mud is after you've played with it for a while, you know, and the mud and Water, you already, I can see some of your face. You already know what's coming at. It gets mixed up. You know, it, it doesn't smell all that great, right? It's not a bed of roses. So we, we were muddy, we were smelly, and we were in dire need of baths. Well, so we got our baths. We're cleaned up now. And now I'm all clean, and, and so there's no mud on me, Right? At least I, I hope there's no mud on me. Maybe, you know, maybe there will be after this sermon. You'll throw mud at me or something. But, yeah, as far as I know, no mud. So, since I'm clean on the outside, I must be clean on the inside, right? I mean, is, is that the way it works? No. That's not the way it works. I mean, you can, you can look great. I mean, you can have it all together. You can be physically fit. You can be outwardly successful. And you may have a facade for every occasion you're in. But the mud and the grime on our hearts and our souls will not wash off so easily. The mud and this dirt and this grime, they go down deep. We are born sin-stained and fallen. And so the right call 
And the cry from a broken humanity is, who will clean this? Who will clean me? On the outside, I might look fine, but on the inside, I am a mess. Who will clean this? And it may be that you have said to yourself, you know, maybe, maybe if, I, if I make up a lot of rules, that will clean me up. Well, maybe if I reform my life, that's going to do it. Well, maybe if I change my identity, if I redefine who I am, that will do it. Maybe if I get that job, or if I get this or I get that, then, then it finally will take care of this problem in me. There must be something. must be something out there that's going to clean me up. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is. The Word made flesh. He has as the one to make us clean. It would be His taking on flesh that would redeem all of you and not simply part of you. In other words, all He assumed He redeemed. He took on the fullness of humanity, your body, the soul, the will, the mind, and all to come to redeem humanity. He took it all except the one part that is foreign to those made in the image of God. He did not take on our sin nature. He would be the perfect, the spotless Lamb. So that though we're dirty, Jesus came to make us clean. What do we just sing? Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? All of him for all of you. What a Savior! He came that all of Him would be and die for us so that all of you would be saved. It had to be that way. There was no other route, no other road, no other path. He is the only way, truth, and life to the Father. So it is that we may know God through Him. He made, He has made Him known. John, he writes here that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this this Word, dwelt, it, it literally means He spread a tent, lived in a tent, He encamped, He tabernacled among us. So, that may not mean much to you. I mean, you may hear that and say, okay, so what? I mean, what does that matter? Okay, he had a a tent. What does that mean? But this isn't just something we are to just consider alone. There are two testaments 
to God's revelation, and the one informs the other. Remember, we began with He is the final word. We to read our Bibles with gospel eyes. Well, with gospel eyes, what do we see? So here we see a rather blatant allusion to the Old Testament, Old Testament more specifically, to Exodus, to the tent of meeting, or where at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built, and what happens? But God's glory comes and fills the tabernacle. It would be, for the Israelites, God's very presence among them. And now, John, very intentionally, is using his words here to call us back to that so that we will see here the glory of God among us. And what does he say next? We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Exodus 33, Moses, he goes to meet with God in the tent of meeting. This was a grievous time. You look at Exodus 32, the golden calf, the people had sinned, they had done great evil, and Moses came before the Lord God and prayed, have mercy on them. He was the mediator between God and man. And so now he comes and asks God to come with us. Don't leave us, God. We cannot continue without you. If you do not come with us, we, I won't go. And so he pleads with God to go with the people instead of abandoning them in their sin. And God says, He will. And so Moses, he asks, Please, show me your glory. To which God, he answers this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now, here is Him who comes full of grace and truth. Not simply to pass before us, but to dwell among us. He would come to redeem. Next chapter, Exodus 34. What happens? Covenant renewed. The covenant that Israel had broken was renewed. And so, what does John write now? For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Exodus 34, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This one comes to bring about a new covenant. Glory of God among us, new covenant through Him.
The Redeemer is here. And so Jesus would come and be a greater grace. The verses here in verses 16 through 18, they pick up where verse 14 left off. So don't think I'm missing verse 15. We'll get to that in just a second. I'm not skipping it, but take special note of this phrase. We have all received grace upon grace. So the original wording here, it's important. It's grace in place of grace. Grace instead of grace. What does that mean? It's saying the law was given as a gracious gift. Old covenant given as a gracious gift. But Christ is the greater gift. For, because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here then is him who would come intentionally, John is writing this, as the second Moses, a greater Moses, coming as the greater mediator between God and man. He would come and perfectly fulfill the law such that we see and say gladly, when you know Christ, you know God. Now, look back to verse 15. So this verse, it is not an interruption in the narrative. It's actually a clarification. Realistically here, so John the Baptist, at this point, he was older than Jesus. Physically older than Jesus. During John's day, age would have meant quite a bit. If you were older than someone, you were essentially, in many ways, greater than that person. But now, John is ensuring that we get this right. Though John was born before Jesus, Jesus was before John. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This enfleshed word is the same word who has been from all of eternity. If there was any doubt, this is Him. The word you saw in verse 1, the word you see here in verse 14, they are the same. The God-man. This is Him who is both fully God and fully man. Thus, when Exodus, what did we hear? It say, again, John connecting these two for us. It said in chapter 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Yet John writes here, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Behold, your Savior has come. And right now, all around us, people are desperately confused. Children 
are confused. And they will be. They're going to be ever more challenged in our generation, in our day. Youth are confused. What in the world is going on? The family, the home, and adults are confused. And they're searching. The long searching, the long history of lies from various philosophies have come to head and now people, what are they doing? They're making meaning up for themselves. I define who I am. They're looking for meaning and they've been told, and they're being told, God is not there and if He is, He's unknowable, He's unreachable and you cannot have Him. Well, friends, with Jesus, let me tell you, your search is over. God has spoken. His Word is true. Christ has come. He has made the way. Though your sins and shame may be great, though you may have told yourself, well, God will never have me, and though your life may be full of rules that have hemmed you in, Though the law now stands over you like a gavel, Christ has come to save you. Simply call on the name of the Lord. Turn to Him and He will redeem you forever. Here is the One who has made Him known. So sinners and saints alike, rejoice and the One who has made the way for us. Here is Him who is the final Word. Him who took on flesh for us. Him who makes the Father known to us. Let's pray. Father, it's incredible, Lord. All these ways that you, you continually and persistently seek after us. All these people who have come before, not to the Redeemer's, the people of Israel who failed you and would not live up to your covenant and breaking it again and again with the presence of God would leave the tabernacle temple. But now, in your mercy upon mercies, you would make a way for us to see your face, to know the Father, God with us, Thank You. We praise You, Lord, for Your wondrous Word and wondrous deeds. We ask, Father, right now that You would help us, Lord, to rejoice, to rejoice in this One, to glory in Him who has made Him known, made You, the Father, known. 
And may, if there's anyone here who does not know this one, this Savior Jesus, may they even now see their need and turn to Him by faith. And Father, we pray as well for us that as we hear these things, as we look out on a world that is lost, and as we are pressed even to to give in to that world, we would say, no, we know God through Him who came for us. We know the Father through the Son. And you may too. May we proclaim Him. May we rejoice in this one. And Father, we pray if there's any here today who need to respond by coming forward just to pray or they have recognized they don't know You. They've sought meaning in all kinds of things, but Jesus is to define them. We pray that they would come or just simply pray in their seat. Just pray that You would be with them in responding to Your Word. We pray that any of you here who need to come forward for baptism or membership, may they obey your word and come. We praise you, Lord, and we ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.